Okay, well, I wanted to welcome everyone to our second series of RE Insights podcast sponsored by GPG Advisors. And we're honored today to have Brandon Weber, who is the founder and initial CEO of Hightower and is now driving the product strategy and operations at uh, VTS. Um, so thank you, Brandon, for coming. We're, we're, we're very excited. And I just wanted to briefly go through yeah. your background. And actually, the easiest way I would sum it up, and I was talking to someone earlier today about this, is that you were still very early in your career. And for most people, you could argue that was their complete career. So <laughs> I go back. It's interesting, but it's true, actually. I mean, yeah. so I can go back to college days and what you've done and background at Carnegie Mellon, and I know you played football, and I believe you play the trumpet, if my memory is correct. Indeed. And you come out of there effectively in more a little bit of a, in, uh, and you'll talk about more detail, kind of the tech-type roles, but you've got five patents. You, of course, started Hightower, right? You, the, the initial seed round was $2 million. You raised $4 million after that. You joined forces effectively and, and uh, took VTS where it is today. But for a lot of people, would look back on their careers and say, you know, I feel like my career is complete. And, and having said that, you really are just getting going. So I'd love to open and, and start talking about your background and your upbringing and kind of the early years, even sort of from college, coming yeah. into the initial workforce. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, it's fun to be on this. And I appreciate the uh, super kind words. Um, definitely feel like I've got uh, so much more to do and just getting started on a lot of the things that we're kind of really excited about. Um, yeah, I mean, so to answer your question, kind of background and upbringing, I mean, um, I, I kind of come from a non-traditional background just in general. I was born and raised in northern Alaska. Uh, my dad was a gold miner. Uh, he ran a small gold mining company um, out in the absolute boonies uh, of Alaska. Uh, so we grew up in kind of a just a totally different uh, type of environment where, you know, where nature and mountains and, and kind of the outdoors were just essentially like everything Every day uh, of your existence was kind of what you what you dealt with. Um, yeah, and you know, like just from my, I guess from a college standpoint, and, and feel free to direct me, you know, whatever direction that you find interesting. Um, I when I was 15, I moved to with my family from from northern Alaska down to the Seattle, Washington area, and graduated from high school down there and went to university at Carnegie Mellon. Um, it w I was. I was attracted to Carnegie Mellon because it, I'm kind of a, I've got an eclectic mix of things that I like to do. Uh, so I enjoyed playing football and hockey, gave me the opportunity to actually play football in college. Um, I was super interested in music. I almost majored in, in, in music. Um, it let me, it was a pretty good music school, so it let me uh, minor in, um, in trumpet and jazz performance. I focus mostly on jazz. And then it, it, Carnegie Mellon's known for kind of its engineering and computer science. And that was, I, I had no idea what I was getting into. I knew that I was, you know, relatively good at math and enjoyed science, but I'd never written a line of code. So I, I went to Carnegie Mellon and joined kind of and, and focused on computer science with with almost zero context on what it would actually do for me and where it would take me, but just interested in the space and seeing how I could take my interest and kind of apply them to something that, that seemed to be exploding as I was, you know, living in Seattle when Microsoft was absolutely blowing up. Uh, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I got into it. Ended up doing a double major in another kind of technical 
field called human-computer interactions, which is super interesting. It's basically like smashing together computer science, cognitive psychology, and design uh, with the kind of outcome of that, you know, of that education is like, how do you actually build software that doesn't suck? Because uh, there's a lot of software that you can build that actually accomplishes things, but it sucks. The experience is terrible. doesn't feel like it even understands what the user's going through. And so that, that actual major was focused on, okay, well, we can build software, we can write code, but how do we, how do we get the user experience right? Which kind of fast forward to uh, Hightower and VTS has been you know, pretty foundational for the way that I think about things. It's interesting. I was going to say is there was a book I read years ago, and I forget the author, but I'm guessing you know, and he was actually one of the founders or early people at Palm Pilot. Mm -hmm. And he then ventured down the path of trying to understand the brain and its interaction in a way and, and how it's processing information, but then how you interpret that externally in some ways. And if my memory is right, they were trying to incorporate that in aspects of their initial design of that tool. And then he left and did something else. I don't know if that rings a bell to you or not. I'm forgetting the gentleman's name. No, interesting. Um, yeah. he, his name doesn't ring a bell, but it probably it sounds a lot like like so. Seth uh, Godin is one of like the really mm -hmm. smart design thinking guys out there, and you know this this kind of mix of like cognitive psychology and baking that into software design is is is, is a pretty interesting field. So. And that's kind of what got me. I mean, my first job out of college was in the software field at Microsoft, uh, working on a product that just had like like hundreds of millions of users every day, and that was Excel. Um, it was pretty fascinating to kind of, you know, it's like a 21-year-old jump into, you know, product management role on the Excel product as we were essentially doing kind of our blue sky planning for the Excel 2007, the Office 2007 release. And so, you know, we were at the very beginnings of planning on that and like having to having to think about like a user base of almost a billion users and hundreds of millions of users active every day from India and Australia and, you know, and, and the United States and every other country in between was like just insane. I mean, the scale that we kind of were having to operate on. So that was my first three and a half years in, in you know, the professional world was essentially um, kind of from start to launch party uh, building Excel 2007. And it was totally an amazing experience for kind of a young person trying to figure out how to build software. And then talk about your, your transition over to Zillow. Yeah. I, I, so we launched Excel 2007. And I kind of felt like I, you know, I, I graduated with my like degree in how to be a, you know, a, a professional product manager uh, from the Excel team, and I'd spent about three and a half years there, and um, I felt like I was ready to kind of do my next thing. I was also pretty interested in working for a company that was much smaller and earlier stage. And Zillow at the time was, I don't know, it might have been 80 people uh, when I joined. And I was attracted to Zillow because it was a young company that was growing quickly. Um, and I was actually just inherently interested in the real estate space. Like my parents, when I was growing up, they were that like classic kind of, um, you know, family that would – we that would go – we'd like move into a house and my dad would do all the renovations himself – and so we'd be living for two and a half years in a construction zone. And then once we got it done and it was like totally livable and we liked it, then we would move out and he'd rent that out. And then we'd buy another house that was completely beat up and live through that every couple of years. So like we kind of had this like very grassroots, like, you know, kind of real estate thread running through our family. So I was super interested in the housing industry and, and had bought my first condo right after I graduated. So Zillow felt like it was solving a really interesting problem. Um, 
And so I joined Zillow, and kind of the first the year that I was there was focused on launching uh, a new product. Zillow was launching what we called Zillow Mortgages. It was a marketplace for uh, for home buyers to find loans and actually get mortgage brokers to bid on on their business, um, kind of even the playing field. And my time at Zillow really kind of unlocked this. Just the, it, it piqued my interest. Is like wow, this. This real estate industry is so fascinating. It's so entrepreneurial. It's so, in many ways, just behind the curve in terms of its use of data and technology and the tools that it has um, at its fingertips to do its job. And Zillow kind of exposed me to one lens of that. And so after we launched Zillow Mortgages, I was kind of ready to make a transition. I was pretty focused on going back to business school, actually. Um, And instead... Uh, started to pull on this thread of real estate. And I had a couple of good friends who were in the business, uh, a couple of working on the ownership side and, and on brokerage. And to make a long story very short, after probably you know four months of, of coffee conversations with various people in the commercial real estate industry, I ended up joining CBRE in, in probably what was the most surprising move that my family had you know could have anticipated, which is joining CBRE in Seattle, to become a, a leasing broker um, uh, focused on, on Seattle office, uh, tenant rep and landlord rep. Uh, but in retrospect, it was the most, it was, it was the foundational move for me to go. And for the next five and a half years, I, I basically built a, a, a pretty vibrant business. My business partner and I became one of the top uh, commercial listing teams in the Seattle market, did a bunch of really interesting work. And I, I just learned the business um, and deeply, and over those five and a half years, I kind of also started to form just a real point of view on um, on why the business was not using technology and how if if we could bring to bear some of the technology that was just sitting there around us, you know, cloud, mobile, easy workflow, user experience, we could kind of change the game. And that's what eventually led me to leave a business that was really exciting and gave me all kinds of freedom, and I was really kind of loving my work at CBRE. We were growing really quickly. We were growing the team. Uh, but I kind of couldn't shake this growing feeling that there was going to be a massive sea change in this industry around technology, and I personally was pretty well positioned to have a strong point of view on how to go do that. Um, and when that kind of pull became too strong, I ended up, you know, I, I told CBRE that I was going to leave to try to start a tech company. So you... You said something there I w- would like to touch on a little bit more, which is about you saw, and not about CBRE specific, which of course is a great company, but about some of the challenges there and some of the things I think that seemed obvious to you why they were not adopting technology and why you couldn't yeah. advance it further. That ultimately, I'm guessing, out of that frustration, not that it was bad, is why you then were yeah. to, to make the change. But can you talk more about yeah. what you saw there, why they were having trouble adopting or what the issues were? Well, the thing about it, it's it's actually it, this isn't even this wasn't even a CBRE observation. This is actually just an observation of the entire ecosystem. What I realized is we, my team, 
got increasingly successful, we were winning larger and larger listing assignments. And we were also doing multi-market tenant rep work on behalf of large global corporations. And so as we were climbing the curve as an advisory team at CBRE of sophistication, we were representing the largest landlords in the world, uh, you know, companies like JP Morgan and publicly traded REITs and, and, and doing work on behalf of the largest corporates. The, uh, the sophistication of the business, we were, you know, the size of leases, deal value, et cetera, was going up. The sophistication of the tool sets and the analytics was not. And it was it was fascinating because we were kind of I had this aha moment where it's like, you know, we 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 sold a building for about five hundred and fifty million dollars and um and it was it, it was kind of the pinnacle. It was at the time it was the highest price sale and in in the market and it was the pinnacle of kind of institutional you know components on all sides of the deal and it was it was still built on a system of record that was just a bunch of spreadsheets and a lot of pdf documents in a in a file folder and it kind of blew my mind and and so it was it kind of when i step back it was this was not any specific company it was like the whole ecosystem of commercial real estate is effectively running on a system of record of spreadsheets uh, and it kind of didn't matter where you turned, acquisitions, disposition, leasing and asset management, uh, pipeline management, et cetera. It was kind of this menagerie of like the, the actual business heavy lifting was being done in Excel spreadsheets. It's not to say that there wasn't technology out there. You know, all, all of our clients had accounting and property management systems, but they were mostly fun- functioning as back office um, accounting systems as opposed to business intelligence, leasing and asset management, acquisitions, kind of like decision enablers, right? So all the real, all the real crux of the work um, that was strategic was still being done in just you know consumer applications, which is just amazing. And and so that's where I kind of recognize when we got to this kind of pinnacle of you know just sophistication. We're working with the most sophisticated people in the room, and all of them are super intelligent and, and have all this capacity, but they're working with the same tools that you would use to, you know, to, to kind of model out or think about a, you know, a, a condo purchase or something like that. That's kind of where I started to form a point of view. I'm like, yeah, there's a massive amount of information here that these organizations aren't able to tap into that they have. You know, their operational data of a, you know, a 50 million square foot portfolio or a 25,000 person, you know, brokerage firm, um, there's there's a huge opportunity here to gather that information, give their professionals tools, um, and then start to unlock entirely new scenarios. And that's kind of what sent me on this rabbit hole. Like, literally, I was, I was, you know, in brokerage and just thinking about this, kind of like armchair theorizing. I'm like, well, how might you, what might technology look like to go and support this? Uh, and it took me a while to get the guts to kind of make a decision to to make a shift um, and also, I think, have a really, really strong point of view on, like, what I wanted to do, what kind of value I wanted to bring from a software angle. So you you form Hightower and. 2013. I know later that year yeah. you raised, I think it was December at least it was announced, just over yeah. $2 million. You, you moved to New York. But what was day one, like when you say you started, what was day one yeah. like? Where were you? Uh, what were you uh, doing? I was so interesting. I mean, I, I remember the day that I told our managing director that I was leaving, told them exactly what I was aiming to do and, and that I was hoping that, you know, that eventually someday um, I'd be lucky enough to have, you know, to, to have them as a client. And I, and I Two great co-founders in Donald and Niall, and 
we were in Seattle, um, and we effectively started the company kind of summer of 2013, uh, where I, you know, left, and all three of us went full time on on building Hightower, and um, and to, to to your point, so that that entire summer was just this frantic iteration on a prototype. Effectively, it was a it was a prototype that was really built around this view that. Um, that were we as a collective industry, landlord, property manager, broker, leasing agent, asset manager, uh, were, were managing the, the deal pipeline of leasing in hundreds and hundreds of spreadsheets. So our kind of minimum viable product that we focused on was we're going to go and build this, this online leasing activity report that consolidates all that information, gives leaders uh, visibility into the health of their, of their leasing pipeline. That's where we started. That was like the tip of the spear. And so we spent the, the summer just cranking on a prototype and iterating with a small group of potential broker and, and owner customers um, on getting their feedback. And we kind of, that going into that fall, we started to onboard them onto a beta and started to get some positive feedback. They so were like, yeah, I'm running my leasing meetings with this now. And yeah, I'm using this to now report up to our head of asset management. And on the back of that, that kind of, customer feedback and, and that market feedback, we raised our first round of funding, of our, our first of three, uh, which was a $2 million, $2.1 million seed round from Bessemer and Thrive Capital and, and a handful of uh, angel investors. So we did that right after Thanksgiving and then promptly like packed our bags and moved from like a coffee shop in Seattle to a coffee shop in, in Manhattan and kind of landed... <laughs> Landed like three days after Christmas, and it snowed like two feet um, the the night I got there. And we were like, okay, we're in New York, and all we had was a bank account with two point one million dollars in it. Um, we had we had a handful of uh, of beta customers that we were like that we were just delicately trying to move forward and 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 make successful. Um, and it was the three of us, so it was it was super interesting. So that was that was you know January two thousand fourteen. When we first came to New York. Because yeah. I think about you had that initial round, and then you had a second round not that long after, right? So the initial one was 2.1. Yeah. You had another one, I think, that was about $6 million. And then two years after that is when you joined forces with Nick and BTS. Yeah. Like, the growth is astounding, actually. We went, we did 2.1, then 6.5 million Series A about six months later. And then about 12 months later, we raised 13.2 um, um, after that in our Series B. Yeah, and that, that, gotcha. was, that was kind of the funding path. And meanwhile, we're growing from, you know, three guys in a coffee shop to I think we ended the first year with 30, 35 people. We ended the second year with um, 75, 70, 75, um, and, you know, trying to, trying to grow on kind of a number of different fronts, brokerage, you know, uh, landlord customers and then started to grow nationally and internationally too. So a lot of surface area to kind of manage as we're, you know, trying to grow this business and and continue to deliver on our promises to the customer base. So let's we've talked about obviously what brought you into the industry and, and the back of your career, but I want to talk about within that time frame, did you have you had mentors or people and do you still have mentors actually, the people that you um, brainstorm with or fall back on at different times, and, yeah. and can you can you share that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the what I find amazing about today, this day and age, is that I can find mentors like 
on the internet. Um, so I have mentors in like so podcasts. You know, Ben Horowitz is a mentor of mine. Uh, it's not a two-way street. I don't get a lot of. I don't. We we don't have a lot of conversations back and forth. But um, his book and his podcast have been so much have have meant so much learning for me. Um, so so that's been critical for me. And I, I think kind of I. I, I believe pretty firmly that you've got to just go seek out the knowledge that you need because now there is so much tactical knowledge where it's like, I'm raising a Series A and I've never done it before. I can read five blog posts and listen to five podcasts and be at least a C-plus student or maybe even a B student at raising a Series A without ever doing it. Um, same with hiring a VP of sales or the 10 things you need to do to expand into, into Europe or need to know before expanding into Europe. And so I'm a huge believer in, like, I think this, this applies to everyone who's listening or running a business, that you got to be willing to go out and do that quick kind of tactical research. And I'm not talking about reading five 500-page books. I'm talking about reading very, you know, things that you're getting done in and out of in less than an hour. Uh, so that's huge um, uh, for me, and I, I take advantage of that. I mean, my, our investors have been solid mentors for me, um, especially around technology decisions. They were, I mean, incredibly important for both Nick and I as we were trying to navigate and negotiate a merger of two private businesses, which, you know, if you go talk to anyone in the technology industry, will tell you that that fails 99 out of 100 times. Um and and I think from a from a real estate or kind of industry leadership mentorship standpoint, um, I mean I've gotten a lot spending time with some of the great leaders in in commercial real estate, uh, some of the great leaders at CBRE, um, in the executive team there, some of the great leaders at some of the major property owners um, um, at you know Prologis and other other firms. I spend time with them, and I, I just every time I sit down with those folks, I learn something that's much broader, you know, than technology or commercial real estate. It's just, yeah, how do you think about culture in a, in a company? How do you get your company to, to world class? Um, how do you hire? Um, that kind of stuff. So it's been, it, it, no one, I, I've kind of got this, I, I guess, maybe a little bit more of a collection of folks that I probably have a, a conversation with, you know, three or four times a year. Uh, it's been super useful for me. Uh, I think that's, I think that's great. And, you know, you look at the the space over time, and so I sort of go back over the last three decades, which I have, I guess, more direct visibility into. And I think about in the 90s, of course, it was a much more fragmented industry, regardless of asset yeah. class, right? It was all highly yeah. fragmented. You had the growth of the REITs in the 90s. But with the yep. growth of the REIT in the 90s, then saw, and over time, going on from then, about consolidation within the space. So I, I used to do a software survey funny, actually, years ago for the Journal of Property Management, and you'd have you know, 20 or 30 different property management accounting, which going back to your earlier point, you know, has, has yeah. been the primary focus for a long, long time, actually, in different mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. And you look at that space now, it's maybe a handful, depending on how you count, yeah. it's actually less than a handful, right? And it seems like the industry's had less and less choice. Not that there are, the solutions clearly have gotten better. So if I if if you take yep. the ones that are out there in the property management accounting case, they're night and day from where they were. But you know, yep. fewer choice. And then you take categories like yours. I could go back to the '90s when it was Lotus Note space stuff, which is still out there. And yep. then yep. with the advent of the CRM, 2000, mm -hmm. 2002 ish, you had Onyx and all these you know Siebel and stuff, and people made big yep. bets. Some in our space actually, in some companies you mentioned. 
Mm-hmm. But they never really satisfied the thirst, right? They never really solved yeah. the problems that were needed. They might have created a little bit of visibility and some efficiency, but they didn't really, you know, help the business. So I, I love kind of where you guys are going, and, and I think where I, what I want yeah. to ask the question really is, when you look out the next five to ten years and, and you look at the challenges that we still have today within the space, you know, how does, how does your organization and how do you and Nick look at VTS and say, where do we want to be in five or ten years and, and what that means to the industry? Yeah, uh, there's a lot there. It's super interesting. And I, I think you've got a really great perspective on this, too, because you've seen, you've been looking at it through kind of a technology and change management lens, but you've seen longitudinally, you know, years of change or years of stasis, you know, depending on how you look at it. Um, I mean, I think to start with your first point, right, which is this kind of the, what I would call like the, um, the kind of macro shifts in the asset class itself. Um, and because everyone asks us the, the, you know, one of the core questions everyone asks us, like, why now? Like, why are you successful now? Or, you know, two years ago, people were asking us, like, why should I care about this kind of software now versus 10 years ago or 15 years ago? And I think there are a couple of, there are a couple of just asset class drivers that are changing everything. And I think one is this, this continued and accelerating consolidation um, and institutionalization. And the asset class, we're going through this kind of like great asset reallocation that I am hearing and seeing when I go talk to the sovereign wealth funds and I'm hearing and seeing when I go talk to the REITs and the major private equity institutions, which is that the real estate asset class is institutionalizing, meaning the, meaning the amount of the aggregation of capital is getting tighter um, and there are larger and larger aggregations of capital into funds and REIT structures and, and, um, and investors. And there's this global reallocation from stocks and bonds into real estate. So it's actually the, the sum total, the pie of, of dollars being pushed out of institutional funds into commercial real estate is growing pretty dramatically, like from some, you know, 1% to 2% 20 years ago to, you know, pushing 9 10 11%. And that's, that's amounting to, like, trillions of dollars. I think it was a, the kind of most recent PwC um, uh, research was showing that it's we're we're up to about six point seven seven trillion dollars of institutional capital in commercial real estate, which is like an like orders of magnitude more than it was before. And so those are because of that, it's it's uh, the the nature of the investor in real estate has changed substantially, and these investors are by nature of being institutional, they are. They care about visibility. They care about accountability. They care about reporting. They ideally want liquidity all day long if they can get it mm-hmm. um, because they're trying to mitigate risk, right? And so those are like brand new drivers to a lot of these owners of property who might have been a, you know, a family office who before was you know, stoked to be a family office and earning a yield on some, on some property, but now is trying to partner with like GIC on doing some awesome placemaking in, you know, in Houston, uh, totally a collision of different goals and requirements and whatnot. And so that's one of the drivers. So institutionalization of, of real estate is creating these big, giant, complex real estate portfolios that you just can't manage by throwing human bodies at it. Um, and the, the capital that's coming in that is, that is growing those pools of money has totally different requirements on what it wants to see. It wants commercial real estate to look like a stock. 
and the platforms, the real estate platforms that can somehow get real estate to look like a stock or look like a bond. And I'm not talking about, you know, making it fully liquid or, you know, I can, I can sell in out of it, but like give me visibility, give me reporting, give me real-time access, like help me understand what I own. Um, it's going to win. It is, it is winning the, the race to assets under management. Um, so that's like one of the macro shifts that I find super interesting. And What's crazy, I think just an interesting data point for, for the, the folks on this line is like we started uh, where our core initial customer were brokers and local asset managers within an operating, you know, an operating company. We are now getting rolled out by the largest sovereign wealth funds or the largest pension funds as a mandate for them and their, you know, the, the, Thirty-five billion out of their three hundred billion that they're now investing in commercial real estate. That is just starting to happen in 2017, which is fascinating because it means the money is saying, "I need visibility. I need tools. I need I I, I need this kind of this notion of like agility and and help make it make make my real estate investments kind of um, uh, transparent, not opaque." So. I think that's like th- this this kind of macro shift around institutionalization. The the I think we are probably in the most exciting or transformational time in commercial real estate that we may have been over the last 20 or 30 years because there's a few big drivers that are changing things. Like I think in 10 years, kind of three things will be fundamentally different. One is how we as commercial real estate practitioners, how we run our business, the tools we use, the analytics we have at our fingertips. You know, this is kind of where VTS fits in. Uh, It's going to be a completely different ballgame. We will have a completely different operating system, or at least the winners will, um, to run their business. I think the user experience of real estate is going to change dramatically. And you've got companies like WeWork who are now trading at the tune of, privately, at the tune of 15 or 20 billion because they've seized on this lightning of, of user experience. Experience. And I think the way we actually build and operate properties is changing pretty dramatically. And, you know, 3D printing and sensor technology is still nascent, but it is completely disruptive. And if I can take a three-year build cycle and reduce it to a six-month build cycle, I've completely changed the game on the core dynamics of this asset class. And so there's going to be a lot of reason to continue to push that. So, like, it's just a fascinating time to be in this industry. It's also, like, a really tough time to be, you know, an industry leader, owner of office or retail or logistics and trying to make sense of all this stuff. Um, So, like, when I – back to your question about, you know, so how do we think about ourselves over the next five years – we think something pretty important is happening right now. We think the industry is moving into like a true shift to being kind of a digital first industry. We talked about this at our user conference. We think this is over the next two to three years, there will be this wave that we need to catch as, you know, the major owners, the major brokerage firms, which is move all of kind of the important operational data that we actually use to make strategic decisions out of spreadsheets, out of files and folders, out of the heads of the super senior, you know, leasing person who's been around for 20 years into easy-to-use collaborative software that can structure and aggregate that data and then analyze it. And that's like table stakes for jumping into kind of the next iteration of what software is going to do, like machine learning and predictive technology and whatnot. Um, and so we're aiming to be that platform that kind of enables our customers to do that. We're focused on, within leasing and asset management, we're very focused on the revenue side of the business. We instrument and optimize our customers' revenue funnel. Um, and by revenue funnel, I'm talking about everything that they do around leasing from 
from finding new tenants to retaining and expanding tenants that have been in their portfolio for 20 years. Um, and, but I think that's a race. We are in an absolute race to get that done. Um, and it sets the table for the next five years of like really big winners. And there are going to be there are going to be landlords and brokerage firms that don't that don't catch that wave, and they go the direction that Lehman Brothers went. There will be landlords and brokerage firms that do, and they're going to be the Goldman Sachs of of kind of this of this movement. Um, and I find it really fascinating. I think we're right in the midst of that, and it's and it's super pertinent. And so we want to be that operating system that enables them to do that. Um, and then we're thinking about, well, how do we deploy machine learning into the context of helping our clients make decisions? Um, how do we leverage mobility just in a much more deep way to make sure that you can be really effective when you're on site in your properties? Um, thinking about a lot of different things there. So anyway, I, I talked for a while, so I want to give you a shot to ask questions or double down on anything specific. No, I, I think it was great, and you're right. I mean, like any industry, real estate certainly in many ways, whether some argue it's behind or where everyone else is, has been very you know, not transparent. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what's happening is about improving that transparency. And I, you know, I say as part of that to be successful, if I make something transparent, you have to have accurate data and it has to be timeliness, which means right, yep. you need effectively tools to do that. But let's, let's continue down this path, though, because logic yeah. to me as an outsider and not knowing about you know, your internal discussions, that you would yeah. move upstream in, in another you know, area that's not transparent, which is about site selection, whether I'm doing as a tenant, the lease mm-hmm. space or whether I'm doing something on an acquisition. And do you see yourselves going upstream to try to solve the, the to create visibility around the trading of assets and the identification of assets to then rent space? You know, I mean, it, it's super interesting. And I think there's a really important and valuable set of problems to be solved around, like, whether it's the acquisition pipeline, uh, site selection pipeline. I think we... One of the, to me, one of the hallmarks of like the truly great companies, whether they're Apple or Tesla or Google or, you know, or Patagonia is that they just, they do a great job of focus. They do a great job of of identifying what they want to be best in the world at and then just doubling down on that until they've achieved it. And so I think we've still got like a lot of running room around this kind of our near-term vision of instrumenting and optimizing that revenue funnel, um, of, of being the platform that helps you move lease deals, do a better job of marketing, convert those deals, run analysis, retain your tenants, understand the health of your tenants and their base, um, and, and, and make sure that you, in, you improve your renewal rates. So we're going to be pretty focused on that, I think, in, in the near, near term. I think where we expand off of that, there's a, there's a, a number of different areas that our customers are excited about. One is give me better analytics and understanding of the markets around us. Um, so I want to understand what's going on around us um, is an interesting thread. What you just described is is another thread, which is kind of moving into workflows that are outside of the kind of the leasing and asset management life cycle, whether it's, you know, deal pipeline management through the lens of acquisitions dispositions, that's one, uh, whether it's, you know, moving more into the cost side of, uh, of asset management. Uh, the thing that's pretty fascinating now, though, is like we're like, you know, we talk to a lot of heads of asset management, a lot of CEOs, and they're like, gosh, if you guys can, if you can increase, if, if you can be attributed to increasing our net operating income across our portfolio 
by 50 basis points, by 100 basis points. It's like that is the single most important lever that you can pull for our business. Um, and we keep hearing it. And, I, and we hear it mm-hmm. from multiple stakeholders, not just the asset managers, uh, the CEOs. Like they're, and especially as you start to break into different industries, right, like, or, or different property types like, like retail, um, it's just like that is, like the, that is where the juice is. And, and so we've, we've kind of got, got our finger on the pulse of that, and we're just doubling down on and And 2018, I think, is just going to bring for us personally as we mature as a kind of post-merged uh, company, we're just, we, we've got some pretty exciting things on the horizon that we think are really going to just drive just very clear, quantifiable ROI there it, and, and just making it to the point where it, it just won't make much sense for you not to be like running that core revenue-like business on a platform like ours. So we're, we're going to try to stay. I mean, there's so many shiny objects in this industry because there are a lot of problems to be solved. We're going to try to stay as focused as we can on kind of the, on, on being best in the world at, um, at that. And then, and then when we feel like we've achieved it, then we can go, you know, we can go build the next, you know, we can go build the Tesla Model 3 after we're done with the, uh, <laughs> with the first Tesla. Well, we're getting, we're getting near the end. I have a few more questions, but one real yep. short is about um, global expansion. And obviously, you start talking about sovereign wealth yep. funds. Right? Some of the yep. biggest ones in the world is Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and yep. in the UAE. But are you now already, like, what are your plans internationally in, in markets yep. and, um, and trying to deal with some of the, the individual uh, market nuances, I guess, on their lease structures and, and what yep. they do? Yeah, um, I mean, because when you so so when you look at our platform and how we get deployed in these large institutional owners, we integrate deeply with the accounting system. So we have to so we have to be very fluent. Like VTS connects to Yardi, MRI, JD Edwards, and and moves back and forth rent roll information. Uh, we're increasingly now being integrated with um, uh, CRMs uh, who are just like like Salesforce or others. So it's there's it. it multiple connection pieces. So today we are operational in, I think, 15 countries now. So meaning that we've got customers with properties in 15 different countries who are using our platform as their system of record for kind of instrumenting, optimizing that revenue funnel. And um, where we are, where we're laser focused in, from a fully supported standpoint is U.S., Canada, and the U.K. So those are that's where we're focused first. And we've got a, uh, a squad, which is what we call a group of engineers, product managers, and designers, focused on specifically on UK product, um, not just localization and nuances, but also just like really understanding are there other use cases these guys care about that are different from the US. And we've discovered them, and actually we're building completely unique product that's really exciting for for kind of the the local UK market. And we're We've, we've made our UK office kind of the base of operations for broader continental Europe. Uh, so we now have pilots in other markets around Europe. We've got customers who've rolled out um, across uh, multiple countries. But we're what we don't want to do is kind of over-promise and under-deliver in those markets. So we're trying to take a very clear stance with our customer base that we're we're going to be we're going to be logical and methodical about moving through those those markets because each one of them has a usually a pretty short list but definitely a list of nuances uh, whether it's in lease structuring or, or deal terminology, et cetera, that we need to make sure that we totally nail in order for it to feel like it was built just for that market. Um, and we've actually had a lot of success really kind of embedding our product team in those markets. So we go out there 
spend like a full week deeply engaged with uh, with the team, then they come back and then they do it again a couple of months later. So switching gears, if you were going to go back and give advice to your earlier self when you were mm -hmm. just getting out of school, what, what advice yeah. would you give yourself? Um, great question. Uh, first thing, I would... I would shake myself and and tell myself that like the first let's call it five or six years of my career I should completely over index on learning. That's it. Like that like my litmus test. Like for am I you know do I take this job or that job or do I take this role or or what am I really trying to accomplish? It's learn. It's gain experience. It's gain context because the likelihood in this modern world is I'm not going to go and find you know my first few jobs are going to be all about understanding where I want to be and then it's going to point me in the right direction later on. And that would have made me probably bolder as I thought about you know taking risks or making decisions that were maybe a little bit less. Um, conventional. I still feel like I was pretty lucky, like I ended up making some pretty unconventional decisions anyway. But I, if I had that as like a philosophical foundation, it would have made me like more confident as I'm like, okay, gosh, the, you know, the high order bit for me in the first five or six years is just soak up everything. Um, that's probably the first one. Uh, the second thing I would say, I actually, when I was 20, so when I made this big shift out of technology into commercial real estate, it was like a real soul-searching time for me. I mean, I was like, I was swimming against the current on all fronts. Like, all my friends thought of me as like this smart software guy. My mom, I remember saying, you know, something to the effect of like, wait, you're going to go be a realtor? Um, and <laughs> it was just hilarious. And, and so just everything, like it kind of had to tear down all of my you know, ego structures around, you know, what I thought about myself and just and just focus on kind of what I want to do. And I started journaling actually that year. And it wasn't it wasn't like a daily dear journal type of thing. It was like I just used it to get down thoughts and 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 reflect and set goals and stuff. I would have my my future self would would convince my former self to start doing that at the age of like twenty or twenty one. It's been in my opinion, it's probably been one of the most impactful things for me to kind of know thyself. And I'm now like the biggest believer in like the Socrates, you know, like point of view of know thyself. It's probably the most important thing you can do early in your career. I think that's, I think that's great advice. And, and with that, we're out of time. I can't thank you, Brandon, enough for participating and thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring this. I wish you and Nick all the success going forward. I'm sure our paths will cross again. And, and thank you again. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks, Brandon.